This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Be honest, how dodgy is your bedtime routine? Are you scrolling for hours in bed before you finally shut your eyes? Or maybe you've nailed the art of winding down. You're really good at it. You've got a set routine. Always swear by it. What should we be doing before bed to put us in the best mood and to get us the best night's sleep? We're going to be exploring bedtime habits that make or break us a bit later. Make sure you keep listening for that. Also, demands for venues to take drinks spiking more seriously. You're going to hear about a big petition sent to politicians today. First, though. Hack! I'll say what I want to say, and if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. On Triple J. Are you one of the six million Australians that uses Twitter? In Australia, it's the eighth most popular social media platform, so it's pretty far down the list. If you do use it, though, have you noticed much of a change in what you're seeing since Elon Musk took over last year? Because a lot of users are not happy. And it's not just Twitter users, it's officials as well. Australia's very own e-safety commissioner is demanding Twitter, Elon Musk, explain a surge in online hate being reported on the platform And he's facing massive fines of up to $700,000 a day if he doesn't respond. Will it actually achieve anything, though? Can Australia force one of the most powerful people in the world to do anything? Well, Australia's e-safety commissioner is Julian Mungrant, and she's with me now. G'day, Julie. Welcome back to Hack. Thank you so much for having me. How does it feel taking on one of the most influential, richest people in the world? Well, I'm not taking Elon on as a David and Goliath type exercise. Um, I'm I'm taking on his management uh, of Twitter. And um, it's always been a fiery place, of course, but it's become an absolute bin fire. And it's no longer um, a safe place uh, for people to engage in constructive discourse. People are self-censoring. They're reporting um, higher levels of online hate than we've ever seen, which, of course, is at the very highest thresholds. Yeah, I was going to ask, what exactly are you asking of Elon Musk? Well, we've sent the uh, legal notice to X Corp, uh, which is uh, now the the official name. We're asking about 36 questions um, ranging from... Um, How many people do they actually have working in trust and safety and in public policy, engaging with government agencies and tackling this hate to who are the 62,000 people that were permanently banned to be permanently suspended on Twitter means you have to be a pretty egregious um, abuser of the Twitter rules. Uh, 75 of those um, allegedly that have been let on have more than um, a million followers. So these are people with outsized influence on on the um, toxicity of the platform. How are they tweaking their algorithms? It's been widely reported that Elon Musk retweaked the algorithms after Joe Biden's tweet on uh, after the Super Bowl got more carriage than his. I think we're all noticing really strange things with our feed. And then the la- the, you know, the last question is also about Twitter Blue, the subscription. Uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate has noted that it appears that those who pay for the subscription have apparent immunity from um, breaking the rules. And uh, we need to know if these algorithms or these subscriptions are artificially amplifying um, these these hateful accounts. In the past, Elon Musk has denied claims that hate speech has increased on Twitter under his watch. What kind of evidence have you seen? Uh, well, we've seen a 30% 
increase in uh, reports of online hate. Um, and, and it's by far and away, most of the online hate that we're seeing is on Twitter. Before October 2022, there wasn't um, th that same delta between reports um, about Twitter and some of the other platforms. So it's really, it's, it's off the charts. So it's not just anecdotal. There is a strong evidence base. You also have um, the fact that they disbanded their, their Trust and Safety Council, which was one of the last things I tried to set up before I left Twitter in 2016. And the importance of that is that you've got advocacy groups and specialist organizations that work in online safety and human rights and protecting marginalized voices in the community. And we know from recent research that one in five Australians receives some form of online hate. But when you're talking Indigenous Australians, those who identify as LGBTQI+, or those with a disability, it's twice the national average. So marginalized uh, communities are being disproportionately targeted uh, with hate on Twitter. What specific kinds of abuse are we talking about? Like you mentioned a few examples there. It's a broad spectrum of abuse. It's not just racism. It's all kinds of abuse. It's really the worst of the worst. Now, uh, Twitter's conduct policy states that you may not directly attack other people on the basis of race, race, ethnicity, uh, or national origin, caste, identity, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. But we see that playing out uh, on a fairly um, regular basis. And so that's one of the primary questions. Are you um, asking the right questions about whether or not they're actually enforcing these policies? Uh, he's made some changes uh, to his policies uh, too recently in April uh, of this year, um, removed dead naming uh, as an example. You know, we've certainly seen an increase in um, online hate targeting transgender people. Um, but uh, but again, it's it's across the board. Um, you know, even being a woman, um, you receive disproportionate amounts of hate and it manifests differently. There are rape threats. There are threats to kill your, kill your children. There are threats uh, uh, and comments about your appearance, your age, your supposed virtue, your fertility. Supporters of Elon Musk say, look, this is opening up the platform to more people. It's actually strengthening free speech. What's your response to that? I can tell you about my experience working inside Twitter. Um, I joined in 2014 because right on the back of the Arab Spring, I truly believed in the power of the platform to speak truth to power, to serve as a great leveler. But what I started to see over time were desperate people that would find me and come to me because they repeatedly reported terrible online abuse and sustained abuse on Twitter that hadn't been taken down. So. Um, many of us um, at Twitter HQ or and, and Twitter Australia ended up being de facto content moderators or escalating um, because there was no e-safety commissioner at the time. And what I started to see was that targeted online hate and harassment is really designed to silence voices. It causes people to self-censor. So I believe if you you let this hate flourish, and I saw it happen with my own eyes, that you're actually suppressing free speech. So we're, we're talking about a fundamental human right to be able to have a safe space to communicate in. And unfortunately, for many people, Twitter is no longer a safe space. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Australia's e-safety commissioner, Julian Mangrant, about these demands Australia's making for Twitter, for Elon Musk to explain a major spike in online hate on Twitter since he took over. 
Julie, as you mentioned before, your role as the e-safety commissioner in Australia is quite unique and the powers you have are quite unique in respect to the rest of the world. What kind of power do you have in your role to force Twitter, someone like Elon Musk, to respond? Right. Well, you know, he still has the right not to respond after 28 days. But if he doesn't answer these questions truthfully um, and fulsomely and in the manner and form that... um, was asked, then I, I can fine him about $700,000 a day. Now, again, that's probably a drop in the bucket for the richest man in the world. But there's more at stake than that. They still care about their reputation. They have to have brand safety if they want to keep advertisers. I think most people would say that Twitter blew as a subscription model has not been successful, is not bringing in the, re- the revenue that he was hoping and expecting. So he did bring in a new CEO, Linda Yaccarino. I think it's no coincidence that she comes from the brand advertising area. Obviously, it's to get advertisers on there. But there's a direct correlation between the toxicity um, of your platform and whether or not advertisers will choose to spend money there. I mean, you mentioned the fine, which to all of us mere mortals, 700 grand a day seems incredible. I mean, he can just not pay that, right? What happens if he just doesn't pay the fine? Well, we have a number of courses of action that we could take around infringement notices. We can take him to court if his executives or board members ever try and come into Australia, we can stop them at the border and they're not in until they pay their fines. There are a range of things that we can do, but What's really great, what we're seeing more of is more countries are finally taking online safety and online harm seriously. And so we formed something called the Global Online Safety Regulators Network. And I was on the phone with a number of um, newly established regulators um, in Europe and in the Pacific, um, in, in Africa and across Asia. So we'll be working together to share information and intelligence and over time hopefully do some joint actions. And I'd also that uh, the European Commission is in San Francisco at Twitter headquarters today conducting safety stress tests to see if um, Twitter will be ready to comply with the Digital Services Act, which is coming into force in in August. So um, we're starting to see some movement here. Julian Mangrant, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, but I did jump on today and I did notice all kinds of commentary. I'm sure you're getting a big backlash, lots of uh, name calling. You mentioned before someone called you E-Karen, like there's probably a lot worse than that that you're copying as well. On a personal level, how do you deal with that? Well, I'll take the E-Karen as the badge of honour, um, but listen, It gives me um, a lot more evidence that this place is toxic and it's hateful and there are threats. And I've certainly had it translate into real life in terms of death threats. I choose not to. I use the conversation control tools. And when I know things are bad, I I don't look at it. But for some people, particularly if it's sustained um, or if you experience daily misogyny or homophobia or racism, Online abuse really cuts deeply because it reinforces that daily prejudice that you're uh, experiencing. Yeah, of of course, um, it's concerning. I worry about my staff. I worry about my team that's looking at social media. Um, Vicarious trauma um, is a thing. My investigators look at child sexual abuse material and pro-terrorist content every day. They deal with people who are in great distress. So 
what we're seeing playing out in the internet can be very ugly and it can have a, a real impact on people. And that's why we're taking action. We're here to try and make the internet a safer, more positive place for Australians, or at least protect them when they're experiencing this kind of abuse. Look, it is a huge step. It's no doubt been an extraordinarily busy day for you, eSafety Commissioner Julian Mungrant. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with us on Hack. Thank you for having me. And on the text line, we've got a lot of messages. Someone says, wouldn't it be better to have all the major social media channels' algorithms independently looked at? Another person, it's pretty simple. If people don't like what they're seeing on Twitter, they can delete the app and go outside and enjoy the real world. That was from Sam in Brisbane. Another person says, I've seen no change on Twitter whatsoever. This sounds like a witch hunt. That's someone's opinion. Then someone else. The biggest change I've noticed is all the graphic videos on there now. People getting killed and maimed. It's so horrible. I block and report every video, but it just keeps showing me more. And this one is really interested. Some, interesting. Someone says, ever since Twitter acts third-party app access, vision-impaired tools to use Twitter became useless. It's unusable. And I'm also worried at the end of this month losing access to Reddit for the same reasons. All right, time to move on. Hack. Thank you for hearing me, believing me. I know that this will be able to make a huge, huge change in our nightlife. On Triple J. You know, we've been talking a lot about drink spiking and one of the big questions that you're always asking is what more could venues be doing to make them safer spaces? What responsibility is there on management, staff? How much training is in place around drink spiking? Well, a petition on this has actually been presented to the New South Wales Parliament today. It was noted by the New South Wales government and had massive support across all the parties. It's calling for mandatory drink spiking and sexual violence awareness training for all bar staff and security guards in nightclubs across New South Wales. So why is this important? Well, Newcastle reporter Keely Johnson has been taking a look. A warning, though, this story does discuss sexual violence and spiking. I unfortunately have had an experience of drink spiking out of the venue and then I ended up drinking about one and a half of those two drinks. And within about 10 minutes, I went to the bathroom and I just felt an urge I was going to vomit. And I started vomiting profusely and I sat on the toilet because I felt very dizzy. At a popular venue in Newcastle last year, Sarah Williams went through a really awful experience. Something like it wasn't right and that I was honestly very scared. The 21-year-old had been drink spiked she did manage to text a close friend, but because he was a guy, he couldn't enter the girls' toilets. The bar staff eventually came in and said, once you finish, you need to get out and get out of the venue straight away. Um, was quite aggressive and it was pretty scary in that moment because I couldn't speak and I just wanted help. Sarah is the founder of What Were You Wearing? It's a not-for-profit group working to end sexual violence in Australia. And after this drink spiking experience, she knew there was just so much more that needed to be done. I'm a victim of both drink spiking and sexual violence. I hear daily so many stories of people who are also victims and I just feel like something more needs to be done. I've seen firsthand that more needs to be done and there's just so many people out there calling for more to be done. Earlier this year, the group launched a petition hoping to change the way that drink spiking incidents were handled at pubs and clubs. They want to see changes to the Responsible Service of Alcohol course, which is basically training to get certified to serve alcohol in New South Wales. And there's courses like this 
all over Australia. Sarah says there is currently a brief section on drink spiking, but reckons it doesn't go far enough. The petition is calling for mandatory drink spiking and sexual violence awareness training for all bar staff and security guards across the whole of New South Wales in like nightclubs, festivals and venues. There's nothing there to teach bar staff and security guards that you've potentially got survivors in your venue. So you need to be doing these things, particularly taking extra measures to ensure that people aren't going to get re-traumatised or re-triggered. And their petition reached Parliament today after gaining more than 20,000 signatures. Overall, we've collected over 26,000 and a good portion of that 14,000 is nightlife festivals, drink spiking, sexual violence related, um, which is why we really took up an area of wanting to make change in that nightlife. But it's not just bar staff who might be responding to the spiking incidents, it's police too. And the New South Wales Police Minister, Yasmin Catley, says it is something she wants to look into more. Drink spiking is heinous. Nobody should be living in fear of having their drink spiked when they go out. It is not tolerable for any person to fear that they can't go out and go home safely due to the fact that their drink may be spiked. As I understand it, there is already some existing training in this space. But again, of course, we always look to improve that and ensure that it is adequate. The Minister says she and the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Karen Webb, have made tackling silent crimes, crimes like drink spiking, sexual assault, domestic violence, a priority. But Sarah says there's not enough being done to protect people, and especially young women. Spiking's been happening for decades, but when I look at all the activism and how the government and everything reacts and bars and stuff, and I see that... It's just the same. It's still the same. That's why I decided we needed a government petition and something mandatory. Because if we want to make change, it just needs to be forced at this point. Hack on Triple J. Keely Johnson with that story. And hey, remember, we want to hear your stories of drink spiking, needle spiking as part of Hack's big crowdsource investigation that we're doing. If you do want to let us know what your experiences have been, you can head to our homepage, our website at the bottom. You'll find the form there. It's really easy to fill out. It'll take five minutes. Get in touch. Tell us your experiences. Hack. I'm on TikTok. I'm scrolling and it's not good. I know it's not good for my sleeping habits. I really look forward to when I have knitting projects that do this stitch, especially at night. So you're sort of mindlessly doing it. On Triple Jack. How do you wind down at the end of the day? Do you have a set routine to get yourself ready for bed? I'm really interested to hear what you do because everyone's different, right? Some people are more, I don't know, um, you know, diligent than others. Message in 0439 757 A lot of us are just glued to the screens and then we struggle to get to sleep. It's this vicious cycle. But should we be doing something a bit more creative to get us into a better headspace before we head to bed? Will that get us a better night's sleep? I decided to ask around the office a bit earlier, find out what the Triple J crew do to unwind before bed. To be honest, uh, I'm pretty terrible. I'm scrolling on my phone. A lot of the times I'm scrolling, but sometimes I like to watch like ASMR videos. Lately, I've been going like on dark mode on Wikipedia and just reading. 
I'd do a crossword puzzle or some kind of word puzzle, but like with a pen and paper in a magazine or some other kind of crossword puzzle book because it's just better to be able, away from a screen and to be able to do it the old-fashioned way. Because I finish my show at night time, I find it really hard to wind down. What about habits? Are there things that, you know, some people are into knitting or oh. crosswords or things like that that help them wind down for the day? Um, look, I wish I was one of those people, but I am not. I am a victim of a doom scroll at night time and it ruins my sleep. Hum and I put our phones in our bedside table um, and then we force ourselves to have a conversation. <laughs> and the conversation puts you to sleep. Um, I mean, I can be very boring. <laughs> Maddie. Hello. Maddie, you've got an interesting kind of hobby I would imagine helps you unwind for the day. What do you like to do? I knit. You're into your granny core. You're like, yes, we're knitting. We're um, taking things back a few decades. Why do you like knitting? Um, I guess it really helps me turn my mind off from the day. Like it's something really specific to focus on. It kind of has enough challenge in it that I have to focus on it. It's just a way to get away from screens. I literally can't scroll while I'm knitting. Can you teach me how to knit? I sure can. Let's get into it. All right, so you want to hold this one with your left hand? Yeah. Are you left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed. Yeah, cool. So that's your... This is where your project is. This is your other needle. Oh, I'm so, so anxious about this. You want to take Why? Your right... It's just a bundle of wool. Why am I so anxious? Um, you want to take your right-hand needle. Yeah. You insert it underneath the left-hand needle. Like in here? Uh, no, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's going well No, so far. no. Uh, you want to go... I, I don't think I'm going to get this <laughs> immediately. But it's going to be a passion project and I'm going to be a knitter. And one day, Maddie, I'm going to knit you a scarf. Hack, triple J. <laughs> yeah, the knitting lessons didn't go down too well, though we picked it up a bit later in the Arvo and I got the hang of it, sort of. There's a pic on Instagram, actually. You can see how it played out. But Maddie, amazing teacher, Maddie King, kindest person in Hack, really getting me through life at the moment. She also cooked me dinner this week. Um, so how much can something like knitting, painting, drawing help us before bed? I asked you what kind of routines you've got before bed. A lot of people sending through what they do. Someone says, I've tried to stay off TikTok before bed and instead taken up knitting another knitter there. Another person, I can't sleep unless I'm watching something on my phone and then fall asleep. That's Blake in Geelong. Someone else, me time before bed. Trust me, it works. No shame. Yeah, Connor, you had a few suggestions. Maybe they're better suited to the hookup. I don't know. But hey, that's what you get up to. And someone else says, do art, paint with music or TV on in the background until tired. That's what I do. That was from Chris. All right, let's check in with an expert. Dr. Amantha Imba is an organisational psychologist and she's from the How I Work podcast. G'day, Amantha. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. What does this research tell us about what we should be doing at the end of the day? Well, ideally, we want to do something, firstly, that is rejuvenating, but is also relaxing and, and sets us up for a good night's sleep. But I think also something that's important is to is to do things that are in line with your values. Um, something I love doing uh, with clients of mine is looking at their calendar. Um, and let's imagine that we're blocking out every single activity that we're doing um, at work or for study, but also in our non-work or non-study life. And I like to ask people, 
get someone else to look at your diary. And do you think that by looking at your diary, they could tell what your values are? Because I think for those of us that are doom scrolling and on social media or just like, you know, eating up hours through through TikTok, um, it's not really living a life in line with our values. Yeah, it doesn't really paint the best picture of you, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And I don't think anyone is going to get to their deathbed and say, I wish I watched more TikTok videos. You know the thing, though, Amantha, is like when you finish work, the last thing I want to do is, I don't know, crack open a project. So I'm going to get the easel out and paint me a picture before bed. Like that's the last thing I'm thinking of, right? Mm, I can definitely understand that. I mean, for, for a lot of us, um, you know, particularly when you're early in your career and you're working hard and you're trying to impress your boss, you, you kind of put everything into your work day and you get home and you just want to crash. Um, that is completely understandable. But I think what I like about some of the activities that um, the people are talking about doing is that they're actually relaxing and they're actually really good in terms of putting us into a sort of mindful or meditative state. Like if you take something like knitting, uh, yes, it requires focus, but once you get the hang of it, it's a repetitive movement and you kind of go into a state of relaxation. And that's definitely been my experience when I, I remember trying knitting during lockdown and found it very, very relaxing. So what kind of impact does it have on our mood overall? If we put away the screens for a bit, engage ourselves in some sort of activity like this, whether it's pottery or painting or even maybe just going for a walk, would that help? It absolutely would. Um, I think walking is always a good thing. But look, we, we know that when we do activities that either involve learning or mastery or things that are quite, um, you know, restorative and relaxing, it's going to benefit us a lot the next day. We're going to start the day with more energy, but also sort of feeling more calm and more focused. Um, and so I think, you know, for people, it's really important to make that link that what you do the night before is going to affect what happens in the following day. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Amantha Imber, an organisational psychologist, about habits before bed, how we can get ourselves into the best frame of mind. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I crochet and listen to a podcast. Once sleepy enough, I'll put the podcast on sleep timer. Another person, I can't do anything crafty before bed because otherwise I go to bed so late because I have to finish it. So instead, it's a cup of tea and then I brush my teeth and that's it. Amantha, how much is screen time messing with our sleep? It's messing with our sleep a lot. Like ideally we shouldn't be on screens because they emit a blue light that blocks melatonin being produced, which is um, the hormone that makes us feel sleepy. So it's basically blocking that hormone, um, which is obviously terrible for setting ourselves up for a good night's sleep. And now some people would say, well, I've got those, you know, blue light blocking glasses, but actually research suggests that they don't actually work all that well. So, so my advice, if you're trying to get a better night's sleep, I mean, there are some people out there that just have a great night's sleep regardless of what they do. But for most of us mere mortals, just stay off the screen at least sort of 60 to 90 minutes before bed and that will help you drift off to sleep more easily and stay asleep better as well. What about the other end of the day? Like if we're talking about our mood, should you avoid your phone the first thing when you wake up? Like uh, don't reach for it as soon as you wake up and start scrolling? Ideally, you should. Um, you know, I think the minute you 
go into your phone and you check out social media or you look at your messages or maybe you hop into your inbox, like you're immediately setting your day up to be reactive. Um, I, I feel like, um, you know, I used to be like have really bad habits around checking my phone first thing. I no longer do that. My phone gets charged in a separate room to where I sleep. But I like when I did check my phone first thing in the morning, I always used to think, gosh, it's like playing Russian roulette with your mood. You know, like if you go into your inbox and there's a really good news email in there, then you're in a great mood. But more often than not, there's, you know, some not great emails there. Maybe like a proposal that I put in for some work has been rejected, for example. And it kind of, it's letting other people determine what mood you're going to be in that day. Um, you know, likewise with social media, if you're starting your day checking how many um, likes or new followers you've got and the numbers aren't looking that great, you're probably not going to start your day feeling that great. So all really good reasons to not start your day with your phone. Someone says, no one's mentioned reading before bed. Yeah, reading is obviously a good one, right? And we're talking about um, books, not on screens. Yes, um, reading is fab. Um, I, I'm a massive reader before bed. Um, so I think reading is just a great way to relax. Um, fiction or non-fiction. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of fiction uh, because... You, you know, you don't need to concentrate too hard often if you're reading fiction, whereas nonfiction, you know, it sometimes does require a bit more concentration, um, but it's such a great way to relax. Oh, it's so interesting. Look, it was really fascinating getting a bit of insight into that. Dr. Amantha Imba, you've got the How I Work podcast, which people should go and have a listen to. It's great. Appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with, with us. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, reading is what I do every night before bed. That was from Danny. Another person says, I put my phone on aeroplane mode, then I journal, then I have me time. Works like a charm. I love how producer Hannah has changed all of the inappropriate things to me time, uh, just so I won't uh, really stuff it up on air. I love that. Well done, producer Hannah. <laughs> but we're hearing all kinds of things you're doing before bed. Someone says, hey, Dave, what did Maddie cook you for dinner the other night? She cooked chicken cacciatore and it was beautiful. I must say. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.